0: Subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing conversations to come. New episodes of With Wit are available every Tuesday on all platforms.
1: Most research is, you know, between 95 and 98% failure rate of intentional weight loss efforts. And if any other product had that kind of failure rate, do you think we would oh buy gosh. it? Do you think that it would still be on the no. market? Like you know, it's, it, the diet industry has so succeeded in brainwashing us to think it's our fault when we fail, when the failure is baked in, the failure is part of the design, and it's what keeps lining their pockets.
0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to Real RealPod, everybody. We've got a really, really great episode here for you today. One of my favorite intuitive eating leaders and anti-diet activists is here, and she's about to truly rock your world with a deep dive into the history of diet culture and a detailed, we love the detail, analysis on why diets don't work. Sitting down with me today is Christy Harrison. Christy is an anti-diet registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the best-selling book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. With more than 17 years of nutrition experience, Christy's work has been recognized in the New York Times, Self, BuzzFeed, Wired, Refinery29, The Food Network. Christy also has her own podcast called Food Psych. I highly recommend you guys. Definitely check that out. And in today's episode, Christy is going to explain how diets and diet culture even came to be, what the health at every size movement truly means, fat phobia, thin privilege, weight stigma so much more. I'm so excited for you all to hear. Before we jump in, I do want to give a special shout out to Michelle. Michelle left a review for this podcast that says, "Victoria does such a good job talking about heavy topics. We have a lot in common because we both have struggled with eating disorders and we both play volleyball. I've always felt alone in my current and past struggles and Real Pod has made me feel like I'm not alone. Victoria always picks the best guests and this podcast is something I look forward to every Wednesday." Michelle, thank you. That has me smiling ear to ear. You will absolutely love hearing from Christy today too. I just know it. And so cool that you're a volleyball player. Shout out to all my volleyball players. I also want to thank each and every one of you who is listening right now. I know how valuable your time is. So thank you for spending it with me here at RealPod. If you enjoy real pod, it would really help out the show for you to leave it a review on iTunes. It takes less than 20 seconds to leave a rating. And then if you want to go the extra mile, you can leave a comment. Please do so if you're enjoying the show and you just might be next week's shout out. PS, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. If you are enjoying the show and you're listening every week, hit that subscribe button so you get that automatic download on Wednesdays and you are the first to listen to the new episodes of Real Pod. All right, without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Christy Harrison. Christy Harrison, it is such an honor to speak with you. I remember when I first saw your book come out, the title was just what enticed me the most Anti Diet. When did you guys come up with that one? I'm sure that was, that had to be it the first time you heard it. Actually, believe it or not, it wasn't. There were a
1: lot of different uh, titles kicked around. I think actually, once once we got to anti diet, it was like, okay, this is it. But the, initially, with the book proposal, it was going to be called the Life Thief because if you remember, that was kind of like a running theme through the book: is diet culture steals your time, your money, your well being, your happiness, and you know, I call it the Life Thief because of that. And so that was the running title, but. Then when I finally got the book deal and was working through it, my editor and I were just going back and forth with different ideas and nothing was really sticking. And then she was like, you know, I had to look through your website just to see if there was any language that popped out at me. And I noticed you call yourself an anti-diet dietitian. What if we called it anti-diet with like two, you know, just big block letters on the cover, anti-diet. And I was like, yeah, that sounds amazing, and so that is a very long-winded way of telling you how the title. I love came the about.
0: backstory. I love the title. I think mm-hmm. it's great. One thing, though, is obviously diet has kind of two meanings. There's the diet, which is just what people eat and drink, but then over time, we've seen diet get such a negative connotation because it's associated with weight loss and restriction. But I would would you argue that nowadays, when people hear diet, they just think straight. To you know, restriction and intentional weight loss. Definitely. I think it has that connotation now. And I
1: think it always has actually. So it's interesting because people often say, Oh, diet's just what you eat. It's like your, your everyday eating. And some people will, you know, go to the etymology in the ancient Greek and say, look, it's just it was, you know, it just meant way of life from the ancient Greek dieta. And so I was like, what is up with this dieta? Where did this <laughs> word actually come from? And what what were the connotations back then? And as best I could find, it was actually like much more similar to the word regimen because it was, it was sort of a s- system of rules. It was like strictures on what you could eat and drink and how to exercise. And it was also um, like bathing practices and sexual practices. It was this whole kind of like, quote unquote, lifestyle, right? But it was it it was very regimented. It was very systematized. And, you know, there was evidence of people saying, well, if you don't eat the correct dieta, then you're like a barbarian or you're subhuman, you know, sort of comparing people who don't quote unquote eat right to, you know, subhuman creatures. And so it just really from the start, I think had this connotation of being very um, exclusionary, very regimented, very... You know, strictured in a way that that it is now too, right? This sort of idea of restriction and deprivation and that you have to do things a certain way. And if you don't do it the right way, then you're bad and you're wrong. And so from the get-go, I think that the term has always had those connotations. And so I really just shy away from that term completely. Like even as a dietitian, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, the word is in the title of that profession, right. And so I always say, you know, I'm an anti-diet dietitian just to try to highlight. You know the differences. And even as a dietitian, if I'm working with, you know, I don't do this much these days, but if I'm you know happen to be working with someone who say um, has celiac disease and needs to eat gluten- free, I don't say your gluten-free diet. Let's talk about your gluten-free diet, right? Because using that word diet, I think just triggers something in people's minds. I've seen it happen where, you know, someone I'm working with for eating disorder recovery will be like humming along smoothly in their recovery and then suddenly their doctor tells them that they need to have, you know, a low-fat diet for to manage their gastroesophageal reflux. And and it's like completely just shoots and ladders, like down the chute back to square one with their recovery or back to not totally square one, but you know, a big backslide in recovery just from sort of thinking of how they have to eat as a diet.
0: In the first like five minutes of our time together so far, both of us have kept using this term diet culture. I think we've said it so many times, rightfully so, right? This is what our conversation is going to be about. When we really go to the the root, the baseline meaning of diet culture, how do you define it? And forgive me because I know you've probably been asked that a billion times. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's
1: totally fine. It's a term that I use so much and I think it is important to define. So diet culture is a system of beliefs that worships thinness, muscularity, and particular body shapes and equates those things to health and moral virtue. It promotes weight loss as and body reshaping as well as a means of attaining higher status, which means health status, moral status, and social status. And it demonizes certain foods while elevating others, so it has good and bad foods, foods that are off-limits or unhealthy, you know, heavy air quotes around those. And finally, it oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of health and well-being, which, of course, is the vast majority of people. And it disproportionately excludes people who are in larger bodies and people of color and trans people and, you know, disabled people, people who kind of are further away from that mythic norm that Audre Lorde talks about of like the white, straight, you know,
0: able-bodied Christian man one of my favorite things about your book was how the very beginning was just this like, okay, let's get the facts right. Let's rewind the clock few thousand, thousands of years and really talk about where this all came from. And I think that's so important because questioning what we believe today is huge. It's huge in personal growth. And it's very important as we slowly start to realize as a society, how many things were just not okay and not right you know, in the past. And one of those questions is like, okay, well, who said this body type is the standard? Like, why is this ideal? And then this isn't. And you've done a lot of work answering those questions and figuring it out. So when you look back at the history of diet culture, what was it that set this standard of thinness? Yeah, I mean
1: that's such a good question, and I feel like that could be an entire podcast unto itself. <laughs> and entire books have been written about this. You know, it's it's a really yeah. interesting sort of nexus of things. I think it goes back to the 1800s and in, in the US and the Industrial Revolution, and so many things were happening in the culture at the time, and a lot of like cultural upheaval and sort of concerns about what industrialization meant. And I think in that sort of fertile ground, there were lots of lots of different things that came together to create the root system of diet culture. And so very briefly, this guy Sylvester Graham, who's a pre- Presbyterian minister, who was one of the first advocates, sort of really public known advocates for cutting out a huge range of foods and, you know, basically demonizing some foods and elevating others, right? That aspect of diet culture Um, and, you know, making it very much about morality and also about health. And then a little bit later, like in the mid to late 1800s, there was a uh, the diet guru, kind of the first real diet guru who burst on the scene, named William Banting, who um, wrote a book called Letter Letter on Corpulence Addressed to the Public, where he talked about, you know, how being larger bodied was problematic for him and how he experienced stigma and pain and, you know, wanted to lose weight and couldn't find any doctor to help him and finally did. And this doctor put him on an experimental diet and he lost all this weight and it like caused a sensation. It was, you know, a bestseller internationally and people wanted to emulate him, including stepping on the scale and weighing themselves, which wasn't really a thing that was done at the time. So those were a couple like cultural Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pop cultural moments. But then I think the the broader sort of backdrop to all of that was anti-Black racism and misogyny and these you know, really oppressive beliefs that made it so that, you know, larger body size became demonized by association with Blackness and fatness. And there's some really great books about that subject that are like, you know, very deep dives into the history. Uh, Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fatphobia by Sabrina Strings is excellent for understanding like how exactly anti-Blackness came to sort of be the ground in, in which anti-fatness developed. Was this when the BMI became a thing? That was sort of, yeah. So I think the BMI was uh, tangentially related when it first came to be. It was, you know, in the 1800s in Belgium was this Belgian polymath named Adolphe Quetelet who developed, it, his his whole thing actually was not even really related to Anthropology. It was more like a statistical exercise. He was a statistician and a mathematician. I was going to say, wasn't he an astronomer?
0: Yeah, that's what I primarily an astronomer. I know it's crazy. An astronomer. So I was. I'm sure you listened to Aubrey Gordon, your fat friend, or Mm Jamila Jamil, but they just had an incredible podcast together, and um, it was just hilarious to hear that an astronomer came up with this BMI, which is just so false and problematic. And then my favorite point about it was when Aubrey said, according to the BMI, The Rock Johnson is obese. So let's just let that speak for itself. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the BMI is incredibly flawed in so many ways. But yeah, so be, so all of these things, right, were kind of dovetailed. It was like the the 1800s were a really fertile time for diet culture, like the seeds to plant and the the you know, to germinate and everything started growing, right? Um, And so by the turn of the 20th century, you know, diet culture was already firmly rooted and like taking off. And the diet industry really took off. Between like 1900 and 1920, it skyrocketed. It was, you know, suddenly there were diet ads in every magazine and people were clamoring for weight loss drugs and all of these different drugs and, you know, terrible things were getting put on the market that had really awful side effects. You know, tapeworms come to mind. There was thyroid medication for people who didn't need it, right? Like it was it was awful. And the, the you know, behaviors and practices people were doing were often really deadly. And, you know, the diet industry just kind of took off from there. And of course, I talk about it in the book how diets don't work, right? And intentional weight loss really doesn't work about 98% of the time.
0: I was going to say the statistics on that are just so compelling. You you just said 96. I've seen 95, but it's like 95 to 98% of diets are not successful. And then do you have on hand the the statistic of people who develop disordered eating habits from attempted diets? It's something like, well, it's complicated cuz the way, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but the way that,
1: you know, disordered eating versus eating disorders are measured, I think is really constrained by diet culture in that, you know, diet culture wants the sort of Less normative. people with eating
0: disorders.
1: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, it's like diet, yeah, diet culture has a vested interest in saying, oh, eating disorders are like this tiny subset of people. Don't worry about them. They're weird. They're over here. And so all of the instruments, you know, developed to like detect them are very specific and have sort yes. of stringent requirements, right? I
0: love that we're talking about this because I have personally felt insecure about like, did I pass the clinical threshold for binge eating disorder? And I remember, I remember my struggles with food. They were like bad, but then you, you talk to a therapist or nutritionist. And, or you look online and there's these bullet points of, well, you had to have had a binge between this amount of days, this amount of food, you had to have felt this type of way. And you had to have had this happen five times over. Like, you know, it was so specific Mm -hmm. that for a long time, I felt really discouraged. I was like, well, then what was that? Was that just, um, you know, dieting gone wrong. So this is a really interesting point. I've never really dove into.
1: Yeah. No, it's fascinating and I think that's so common for people to and I had that experience myself too of being in what I now know was definitely an eating disorder and you know I didn't get a diagnosis at the time but I for sure had you know the the relationship with food that was characterized by that level of distress and was engaging in some really disordered behaviors. And yet, you know, when I went to a therapist and said, you know, I'm a little worried. My parents are kind of, or my mom's worried anyway. And, you know, people think I might have an eating disorder. She was like, well, you can't have an eating disorder. You're not thin enough. She actually said, Mm. you're not a slight person, which was like such a weird way to frame it and so specific. And it's like, what, what image do you have in your head exactly of how someone with an eating disorder looks that
0: That's such a passive term to use.
1: Right? It's so strange. And it was, you know, and I I mean, I've always been thin, right? I've had thin privilege where I've never had to experience the discrimination of being in a larger body or have doctors tell me to lose weight or anything like that. And I was, you know, definitely too thin for my body at the time to do what it needed to do because I was having all kinds of health problems. And, you know, they magically cleared up when I started eating enough. Really, I was struggling and I needed to help. And that was kind of my way of cracking open the door of like, do you think this is an issue? I don't know. And, you know, it was very much in denial still, but kind of wanted... Help at the same time. A part of me wanted help. And her saying that just like made me slam the door shut and barricade at close and be like, okay, I'll show you who's slight. I'll show you who's thin enough for oh, an eating gosh. disorder. And like dig myself even deeper into the, into the hole. And I think that happens so, so often. Like people don't think they're quote unquote sick enough for an eating disorder, or they have someone say that kind of thing to them of like, you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder. And like, what does that even mean? There should be no weight criterion. And, you know, thankfully, I think as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders evolves, it does, you know, kind of shed weight criteria at every uh, iteration. But there's still this pervasive idea that, like, someone has to be emaciated in order to qualify for having an eating disorder. And there's only one way for an eating disorder to look. When we know that eating disorders happen at all body sizes, all across the weight spectrum, there is no look to an eating disorder. You can't tell who has an eating disorder just by looking at someone. And, you know, this sort of old school way of diagnosing people on site just turns people away from from treatment and from seeking help that they so desperately need and deserve
0: yeah there's so much I want to dive into oh my gosh I'm looking at how long it's been and how much time we have we still have a lot of time left but I'm thinking of everything I want to talk about with you and I'm like oh my gosh okay here we go so one thing I want to touch on right now based on what you just said is I think that and tell me if you agree one of the biggest things that I think all people kind of uh, believe um, from that diet culture voice in society are the labels of clean eating, healthy eating, mm-hmm. junk food, that moral hierarchy of food. And those labels, I mean, obviously we know are harmful because you as- then, if you eat the junk food or the bad food, you know, you associate that with guilt and shame and, you know, you didn't eat right. And then it just creates that cycle. And one of my favorite quotes from Aubrey Gordon is, We are replacing a beauty standard with a health standard that is just Mm. as fickle, just as relentless, and just as out of reach for so many. And I'm finding that diet culture, we're seeing a good change, not the change we need. People are still very much oppressed, but we are seeing some like Victoria's Secret didn't have their fashion show. We're seeing more body diversity in places that there wasn't five years ago. But I do think diet culture is still very present, but disguising itself as, okay, well, it's no longer about your image, but you got to eat healthy. You can't eat junk Mm -hmm. food. You got to eat clean. Would you agree with that? Oh, totally. Yeah. I call it the wellness diet. It's the way that diet culture has
1: shapeshifted for the 21st century. And it's kind of an interesting, I mean, that's a whole other chapter, which is about kind of that morphing of diet culture and how it's Transition into being about "quote unquote" wellness, even though it's just the same thing, right? It has those same <laughs> principles. Yeah. It's that same system of beliefs that I talked about, but it's cloaked in the language of health and wellness. So now it's like, yeah, eat right, be healthy, and oh, if you happen to lose weight, then that's great. That means it's working, or that means you're healthier, or you know, you just you need to um, lose weight for your health, right? And it's not about beauty; it's about taking care of yourself. And so in all these ways, you know, diet culture used to be so much more above board and so much more overtly about the aesthetic and the pursuit of weight loss and thinness at all costs. And now it's like about, you know, supposedly about the pursuit of health, but it's actually just the same thing. It is still the pursuit of thinness at all costs. It's just been rewrapped and repackaged for the 21st century because people started to get the message in the 1990s like started to get you know the awareness and the science was there that diets just don't work and that diets have an abysmal failure rate and not only do they make people regain all the weight that they lost but oftentimes people gain back even more than they lost and weight cycling that that yo-yo of weight loss and regain has independent negative health effects that are actually you know, can explain a lot of the excess risks we see for people in larger bodies for particular health conditions. All of that information was emerging in the 1990s, and scientists and doctors were, like, getting the memo. This was mainstream, right? my point. Like, this was all getting out there in a big sort of mainstream way. And people were getting the message that diets don't work. And I think the diet industry was really running scared and looking for a way to pull people back in. And so that's where this sort of repackaging of of dieting as wellness came to be. And I think that we are in a similar moment right now because... Health at every size and intuitive eating and anti-diet, the anti-diet movement has been gaining steam and taking money away from the diet industry's bottom line for a number of years now. And COVID-19 became a convenient uh, way for the diet industry to sort of regain a foothold. And, you know, you see this especially with the pushing of bariatric surgery because there's a lot of research coming out now that's supposedly, you know, says that that higher weight is supposedly a risk factor for COVID-19. It's super problematic research. A lot of it doesn't control for confounding variables and I talk in the book about, you know, how correlation is not causation and how if we do see a link between higher weight and certain health outcomes. It doesn't mean higher weight causes that health outcome. It just means that there's maybe something else going on that's causing the two or that's linking the two. In many cases, it's weight stigma and weight cycling, right?
0: Yeah. Sorry to interject here. I just, I do want to dive into this health at every size discussion because I think it's really important. And I really want to make sure that like I squeeze all the juice out of your knowledge here. And some of these mm-hmm. questions I'm about to ask don't reflect how I feel, but I just know that some listeners might have these thoughts and it's best to, you know, kind of ask you these questions that might seem like pushback, but just because I want to generate, you know, all the information you have to offer. So you said correlation is not causation. What would you say to mm-hmm. a question that that states, okay, well, let's say you have a thousand people and 500 of them, are weigh about 400 pounds and the other 500 weigh around 160 and they're all 5'9". And the ones that are 500 pounds all are suffering with this same Illness or the same condition. How can you not make the assumption that it might have to do with the similarity amongst that group of people? Yeah.
1: So a couple of things. I mean, I think again, that's correlation, right? Because we don't know. We don't know what all what all is going on for all of those people. You know, living in this world at four hundred or five hundred pounds brings a tremendous amount of weight stigma with it because of the culture we live in, because of diet culture, right? All of that, you know, system of beliefs that gets imposed on people from birth, basically. And so, you know, people are bearing an extreme amount of weight stigma as they move through the world at that size. And weight stigma includes medical weight stigma, which means people are getting subpar care. Um, Doctors aren't spending as much time with them if they see them at all. Patients are feeling Discriminated against in the doctor's office and not cared for. Doctors say some horrible, awful things to people in larger bodies. And that makes people in larger bodies often delay care, not go to the doctor. Um, also, people in larger bodies tend to be paid less and you know not have jobs as often and so, or be, be less likely to be hired for jobs. And so having health insurance and access to care might be further out of reach for higher weight people. And of course, with intersecting marginalized identities, that compounds even more. Right. And so the experience of life in a larger body means that people are less able to access high quality, compassionate, evidence-based health care. And I talk about this a lot in the book, where, you know, that medical weight stigma has led some people to die of cancer or lose their lung because they were misdiagnosed as, you know, your shortness of breath is just because of your weight and you have to lose weight. Or, you know, my friend Reagan Chastain was went to the doctor for strep throat and was told to lose weight instead of being given antibiotics. And luckily, she was able to advocate for herself and get the care she needed, but not everyone is that lucky, right? And so, you know, when you look at people in larger bodies, you can't separate them. You know, as, as Reagan actually says, you can't separate fatness from a history of weight stigma, from a history of discrimination in this culture. And so, And we know that weight stigma is an independent risk factor for things like heart disease, diabetes, early mortality, some forms of cancer right there's all these different things that that weight stigma alone brings to people's lives independent of their weight and then that's not even to speak about weight cycling which is another thing that people in larger bodies experience disproportionately and especially at the higher end of the scale so you know that group of 500 people or whatever is much more likely to have gone on multiple diets and lost and regained lots of weight over the years. And that process of weight cycling actually puts stress on the body and makes puts people again at higher risk of all of these things that tend to then get blamed on weight itself, but that are actually explained by weight cycling, heart disease especially. There's Uh, really strong evidence for cardiovascular risk from weight cycling independent of body size. Also mortality, some forms of cancer, potentially diabetes, you know, so again, it's, the, it's the weight stigma and the weight cycling that can explain a lot of that excess risk. And that's to say nothing of other potential confounding factors like poverty and lack of access to health care and experiences of discrimination, um, you know, other than weight stigma, right? Experiences of racism or discrimination based on gender identity or whatever it is. So, you know, you put all those things together and you can really see how correlation is just not causation when there's all these other confounding factors at play and you can't take the person who's living at 400 or 500 pounds out of the society that is causing them to have disproportionate amounts of weight stigma, weight cycling, and other forms of discrimination.
0: Wow. I I absolutely love that. It just goes to show that there are these effects on mental health that come along with living in a certain body based on the oppression they're going to experience from our society. You mentioned thin privilege earlier in the podcast. And I think that's a great thing to talk about and something I've been very aware of just when I see my content um, take really well to people, right? They're happy to see me celebrating imperfections and eating pizza because I'm still in a thin body despite the issues I've had. But when someone in a larger body is celebrating their imperfections And they're eating pizza, that person is not getting the support because of their body type.
1: Yeah. I mean that's that's exactly it. That's what thin privilege, you know, that's how it manifests online and in the world in a lot of cases. It's this idea that, you know, you can like eat whatever you want and it's cute or it's fun, or like it's, you know, people will hear you more with your message because you're in a thin body. I mean, same with me, you know, I think that part of the reason. I have reached the level that I have with this message is that, I don't threaten people because I'm in a thin body because, you know, people are like, okay, maybe I can still look like her if right. I do this intuitive eating thing, right? I mean, obviously not to discount either of our work to get where we are too. There's that, but there's also this very real sort of leg up that we've gotten from having thin privilege in doing this work. And, you know, that's that's to say nothing of the things like fitting into clothes at a mainstream clothing store, airplane or theater seats, right? Being able to go out and, you know, just be spontaneous and go to whatever restaurant and not have to check ahead of time. Okay, do they have booths that can fit me? Do they have, you know, chairs that can hold my weight? Like all of these things that larger body people have to think about and ways that they're curtailed from participating in society because of, because society, not because of the size of their body, but because society is not designed to accommodate the diversity
0: of human body sizes that exists in doing research into your background i know that it took you years i think you've once even quoted a decade to go from when you were trying to quote unquote solve the obesity p- epidemic to now where you are promoting health at every size what was the biggest pivotal change for you in basically your entire belief system right because we still see so many people who are fatphobic and it's very hard for people to really see past what they've grown up believing and i see the same things ha- i see i i still i would be lying if i said i don't have internalized fat phobia still obviously i'm doing my best to work through it but when you look at your body in the mirror and you say oh this looks bad you know there is an association with okay well then i think fat is bad and so you know there's that whole rabbit hole
1: yeah no i mean i i feel you on that hundred percent. I think none of us are ever done sort of unearthing the internalized fat phobia, as well as like the internalized racism and sexism and homophobia and all the stuff, right? We're we're socialized into this oppressive culture in so many ways. And, you know, we all have work to do to to get to get it out. But um, you know, for me, I think the thing it wasn't really one thing. I think it was a, a slow building of things, but they all sort of revolved around my personal experience with Eating disorders and my professional experience starting to work with eating disorders. And also, even before that, when I was working in community nutrition, just seeing people who were like my quote unquote star students in my nutrition education classes or my star patients in the clinic, like, you know, the people who were doing all the things that I was recommending they were like weirdly reminding me of myself when I was really disordered with food and that was very uncomfortable and confronting and I didn't know what to do with that at the time. But I actually, I remember the first time that happened, I was working at doing nutrition education at a farmer's market and I had just discovered intuitive eating. I was working with my therapist on incorporating it into my life. I had discovered the book Intuitive Eating. And, and so, you know, I think that was a huge turning point for me was incorporating intuitive eating back into my own life. And I had actually been an intuitive eater up until age 20 because, again, thin privilege. Nobody ever interfered in my relationship with food because nobody thought I needed to lose weight. Also, Other forms of privilege that allowed me to have food security and to always know that food was going to be available. So I didn't have that piece of deprivation interfering with my intuitive eating uh, cues. And so, you know, I had, had had that good fortune to be an intuitive eater without even knowing it up until age 20 and then gained a little bit of weight decided to lose weight. And that's when all the the trouble began for about a, a decade. <laughs> um, and so when I discovered intuitive eating, it was, you know, really like coming home to this way that I had eaten and related to food in my body previously. And it was so healing for me personally. And then like in my career separately, as I was transitioning or, you know, starting to move into working as a, a nutritionist and eventually dietitian, it was, just such a strange you know cognitive dissonance to be doing it one way in my own life and then telling people to eat a certain way you know other ways because i was told and i thought and i believed at the time that you know well this person's heavier and so they need to lose weight so they need to do this even if i'm doing this other thing right and eventually that you know just became too cognitively dissonant i think and I started to move into wanting to work with eating disorders because I was so fascinated by the ways in which people's relationships with food go awry and and how so many of us struggle in our relationships with food in this culture and that's where I really started to discover and and dig my dig dig, dig into health at every size. I started going to to conferences and seeing health at every size presentations and and people talking about health at every size as sort of the gold standard of treatment for eating disorders and a way to both prevent and treat eating disorders, you know, a, a form of health care that could help with recovery in that way, because it was really compatible with the idea that, you know, there's no one right weight to be and that we don't need to control people's weight and that people don't need to eat to shrink their
0: bodies. Usually when you hear health at every size, people think of larger bodies and they think that that is basically what the movement is for. What about people who you use the word before emaciated? What if someone appears sick in that way? Does health at every size basically protect that body type and saying that, being extremely thin could be healthy for that person? That's a trickier
1: question. And I would say not necessarily, right? Because health at every size really means that, it, it doesn't mean that people are healthy at the size they are at now, whatever size that may be. It means that health is possible, at every size and that for people to pursue health, they don't need to shrink themselves in order to achieve that. Health is not a, a static state, but to be able to pursue and develop health as they go along. And also to the extent that they desire to and, and have the resources to do, right? Because health is not a moral obligation, I always want to make sure to point out. But, you know, for someone who is emaciated, it's very, very unlikely just in terms of human physiology, it's very, very unlikely to be emaciated without something going on that's causing that that is really problematic, whether that is a restrictive eating disorder, whether that is, you know, cancer or some other form of illness. To be able to, you know, pursue health and achieve greater well-being for a person in that you know, size of body, it really means addressing the issue, addressing what is going on, not the weight itself, but addressing, you know, for example, anorexia, right? If someone has anorexia and they're in an emaciated body, the way to approach the health at every size approach to that is to work on healing your relationship with food. You know, if you're in a, like, little wooden shack in the woods or a little cabin with a wood-burning stove to keep warm, and it's the middle of winter, right, and you have your deliveries of wood that come every week, and then suddenly the wood stops coming, right? The wood is like the food, and, you know, so the, the food stops coming, the wood stops coming, the energy stops coming in. What do you do? You have to start breaking down like the wood in the house. And so maybe you start with non-essential structures like wood paneling that's just decorative or, you know, floorboards and things like that that are not strictly necessary. And then it, you know, still no wood arrives. And so you have to start taking down more essential structures. You have to take down support beams. You have to take down roof shingles and siding and, you know, burn that to keep warm, right? To stay alive. And if you don't have a delivery of wood that eventually comes, you're going to have to take down the whole house, to, to be able to stay warm, right? And so that's what, that's what happens in um, restrictive eating disorders, but also in other disorders where someone may not be able to um, get enough energy to survive. You can't say that it's healthy to be emaciated because health at every size, right? Eating disorders are like unhealth at every size, I would say. They're the opposite of health at every size because they're, you know, you're, you're, Depriving yourself of what you actually need to survive and health at every size means pursuing well being without worry or concern that your body is going to get larger or without worry or concern really of what's going to happen to your body. But you need to have the fuel coming in in order to keep yourself safe.
0: If we flip this on its head and we go to the other end of the spectrum of the opposite of being emaciated, so assuming that someone in a body so large maybe they're unable to walk would you associate the same sort of analysis
1: so that's that's a different story i think because you know bodies that are at that large end of the spectrum don't have the same um sort of starvation risks and and you know immediate danger that someone in in that emaciated state is in and when someone is in a very large body like that and might have mobility issues or things going on that are interfering with their quality of life. Unfortunately, we just don't have a safe and sustainable way for anyone to lose weight, even folks at that very high end of the spectrum. And that includes bariatric surgery. I lay it all out in the book. And so what Health at Every Size offers to someone at the very high end of the weight spectrum is evidence-based tools and practices to take care of their health, whatever their size and whatever happens to their body without trying to shrink it. And so that can look like eating in a way that promotes well-being, right? Maybe helping people recover from any disordered eating behaviors they might have, pe- getting people medication for any any issues that they might have, knee replacement surgery, mobility aids. You know, so there's, there's tools and resources and practices that people can engage in, even at the very highest end of the weight spectrum and all across the weight spectrum, to support their health and well-being without shrinking their bodies.
0: So... To clarify, you mentioned that weight loss in any form is harmful. What would you say about someone who is like, I'm just going to go into a 100 to 200 caloric deficit. And by the way, I don't advocate for this. I don't count my calories. I'm just trying to interview you here and get like all these great juicy answers to the most baseline (laughs) comeback, quote unquote, comebacks from society. So what would you say about Mm -hmm. someone who's like, okay, well, I did a deficit of 100 to 200 calories. I lost X amount of weight over the course of months. And they truly feel like their mental health wasn't like severely affected by that. Do you think that's a possibility for some people?
1: I mean, look, the, you know, the research on the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of diet, most research is, you know, between 95 and 98% failure rate of intentional weight loss efforts. So that leaves like two to five percent of people that are the quote unquote success stories, right? So, you know, two to five percent of however many hundred million we are in the US and then, you know, around the world, it's like that's still a lot of people, right? There's a lot of people who are these quote unquote success stories, these weight loss unicorns. And it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to do that in a sustained way and have it not take over your life. In the book, I talked to Glennis Oyston, who's now a fellow anti-diet dietitian and identifies as fat and was always in a larger body but, you know, was one of those quote-unquote success stories. She was a weight loss unicorn. She lost weight and kept it off not just for five years, which is sort of the criterion criterion for quote-unquote success, but actually for 16 years. And she did it by this sort of light dieting at first, right, where she, you know, cut some calories. She started, you know, swapping things out, whatever, whatever, um, and, you know, lost lost some weight gradually over time and seemed to maintain it. But the problem was it started to get harder and harder and harder to maintain every year. And she started to have to work harder and harder and do more and more dramatic things in order to maintain that weight loss because her body was fighting it body was fighting to go back to baseline, to go back to its place where it was safe. And, you know, I talk in the book, too, about this sort of idea of a set weight range, right? It's often called set point, but I don't like the idea of a point because it's not really one point. It's sort of a range that your body is genetically programmed to be in you know, your set weight range is, I mean, I don't like to say numbers usually, but it's it's a pretty wide range of of sizes. You know, you can be in and sort of be, um, your body won't fight it. Maybe you can, you know, maybe this this cutting the calories, you know, small amount of calories could fit into that, right? The problem is that when you go below that set weight range, Your body starts to really fight it. And it has all these biological processes that kick in to push you back to the set weight range and usually overshoot a little bit because your body is convinced that it's in a famine and it's in a place where famine is common. And so it needs to like store a little bit for the next time. And no one can really tell you or know where that set weight range kind of ends. You know, if you're in a a larger body like Glennis was, right? My friend Glennis, like, you try to lose weight, you know, you do it and you, you do the light dieting and you kind of get down to, you know, the quote unquote normal BMI range or whatever, you know, you think that your body is sustaining there, but then years go by and it gets harder and harder and your body fights to get back up to where it was. Well, then that wasn't really your set weight range, right? You weren't actually at a place that your body could maintain um, naturally, you know? And and so, you know, I think eating disorders and and disordered eating and chronic dieting, oftentimes will push people below their set weight range for a period of time. And people will sort of think, oh, if I could only just keep doing this forever, or if I could just get back to doing what I was doing when I was that weight, I could just magically stay there forever. But the whole like, you know, 3,500 calories equals a pound thing, and you cut an X amount of calories, like lose certain amount of weight in the end, and then you just keep eating that many calories forever. That does not work. That is actually not real. (laughs) It doesn't work outside of a lab. You know, that's a a very um, old and debunked, Theory and and it it's just you know it seems to work in the short term but it actually go it's at odds with what our bodies really want to do so from what I've seen in in the research on those unicorns it looks a lot like anorexia for a lot of people and in fact there's a a paper um, by some researchers at Columbia that is actually called something like you know lessons from anorexia nervosa for for long-term weight loss or something, which is a horrifying way of framing it. It's really, it makes the comparison between, you know, anorexia and these long-term weight loss sustainers and shows that there are really striking parallels. People are organizing their entire days around what they're eating and not eating. They're eating very little. They're exercising compulsively. They're weighing themselves compulsively. They're not taking any time off even for vacation and holidays. They're very rigid. They're very obsessed with maintaining their weight. And that's eerily similar to people who are in the throes of anorexia nervosa.
0: Oh gosh, that's chilling to hear that possible parallel. Um, I have to check that article out. Mm -hmm. That's another thing is you, I mean, I'm not surprised you were a journalist. It's clear just from your book and obviously our conversation today, all the research, all the peers and colleagues and And books and articles and history that you have mapped together to really come to this place where you're sharing a message that's so important and truly speaks out and fights back against the traditional norm. I mean, I think the most polarizing statistic is literally 95% of diets are not successful. People advertising diets should be like, oh, try keto, try South Beach. And just so you know, uh, you have a 95% chance of failing and possibly developing an eating disorder because it's so harmful what they're offering. (laughs) And that part of the, the offer just is excluded from the narrative.
1: Completely, and if any other product had that kind of failure rate, do you think we would oh buy gosh. it? Do you think that it would still be on the no. market? Like, you know, it's it. The diet industry has so succeeded in brainwashing us to think it's our fault when we fail. When the failure is baked in, the failure is part of the design, and it's what keeps lining their pockets. It, what it's what keeps the diet industry ballooning by billions of dollars every year.
0: It's so true, and even just thinking back on my old younger self who used to diet, I was like, I don't get it. I'm I'm a good student. I'm a dedicated athlete. Like I, if I need to get something done on the volleyball court, I figure it out and I get it done. Why can't I just resist carbs for a month? Like, why don't I have willpower? <laughs> it was like that was the one area of my life that I I I was failing, and I thought it was truly my fault. And you know, it's just so freeing. To realize, number one, it's not you that's the problem, and then number two, to join in on this movement against, right, like the anti diet, like what your book says, against this oppression and this weight stigma and all these problematic things that are preached to us on a daily basis. And I truly hope that in the coming years we see we see a big three hundred and sixty. I mean, I hope so. Do you think we're nearing that point, or or it's on the the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we could totally have
1: a 180, but the the problem with that I think is that the diet industry is such a huge multi-billion dollar operation and is not going to go down without a fight. And so I think we need to be incredibly vigilant for all the sneaky new ways that diet culture and the diet industry show up and masquerade and you know i think that we're getting close to a critical mass of people who are just ready to walk away maybe although you know when i leave my bubble and go spend time out in like different parts of the world and the country and you know with people who are not anti-diet folks i'm sometimes sorely disappointed at how far we still have to go Um, Mm -hmm. so I, i alternate between feeling really optimistic and feeling really like you know, this is not going to happen in my lifetime and maybe not even in my kids' lifetimes. But I think that, you know, any good social movement, that is the case, right? That it takes, I forget who said it or what the exact quote is, but it's something like, you know, real change takes like three generations or something like that. And, you know, so I think maybe we are in this for the long haul. Maybe this is something that we're going to have to pass the baton to the next generation and, and you know, I feel I have received the baton from the previous generation, right, of the people who started, you know, anti-diet and fat activism back in the 1970s and, you know, have continued on in this work and are are now kind of nearing retirement. It's like there's, you know, a transition there happening. So maybe there's, you know, one more generation and then maybe we get there. I don't know. You know, it's right. and, and, you know, it's never like any other form of oppression it's never really gone, right? When you look at you know the parallels with other forms of oppression, it's like there's there's rights that are gained, there's lots of ground that is achieved, but there's also you know the residual effects and the, the systemic racism or the systemic sexism and homophobia and things like that, and that's that's I think probably going to be there as well with fat phobia um, longer term, and and you know it's going to take just a lot of undoing and unlearning and untangling to really get it out of our system.
0: Well, that's why it's so important that you are doing what you're doing. And I'm so grateful that you took the time out of your day to come share this with us. Christy, I just really appreciate it. So thank you so much for everything you shared with us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk with you. If you enjoyed this episode with Christy Harrison and you want to stay in touch with her on social media, please follow her on Instagram at Christy Harrison. The Christy is spelled with a one. So C-H-R-1-S-T-Y Harrison. She's a fantastic Instagram follow and her podcast is called Food Psych, which you can stream anywhere you listen to podcasts. It's incredibly informative and pretty much an extension of this episode. So if you enjoyed this, definitely check out Christy's podcast. Thanks again for listening to RealPod. I so appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss one and you get that automatic download on Wednesdays. And if you're enjoying the show so much, you can also go to iTunes and leave a review and a rating. It would mean so much to me and it would really help out the show. You can keep in touch with me and RealPod throughout the week by following the RealPod Instagram. It is just RealPod. And you can also follow me at Victoria Garrett. Comment on the Instagram, DM us. Let us know who you want to see on the show. I love hearing from all of you. And I'm always happy to hear your suggestions. I hope you have an incredible rest of your week. And as always, don't forget to keep it real.